I'm hugely excited to introduce the Kiddish Club, which is a newly launched UCL Jewish Society podcast. It's a forum which we'll be using to broadcast interviews with guest speakers who will be hosting throughout the year. We've got a brilliant lineup of guests with speakers including leading professionals in music, literature, politics, philosophy, STEM, and so much more. Stay tuned for our very first podcast. Here with us today, I have the magnificent Edwina Curry, politician, broadcaster, author, actress, and most importantly, fourth runner-up of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here 2014. Born in Liverpool into an observant Orthodox family, Edwina won herself a scholarship to Oxford University, where she read philosophy, politics and economics. She became an MP in 1983 and served in Margaret Thatcher's government, representing a Midlands seat for 14 years. She's also the author of six novels and has written four works of non-fiction. Edwina, I want to thank you enormously for taking the time to come onto the UCL Jewish Society podcast as our very first guest. Because we're a faith society, I think the first question I want to ask you sort of revolves around your experience with religion growing up in Liverpool. So how Judaism shaped your childhood? Well, it was a very important part of uh, the way I grew up because my grandparents were kind of uh, pillars of the community. My great-grandfather ran the mikveh for many years and um, the hafts and the crystals were very well known, quite big families, not wealthy at all. Uh, my grandfather came to Britain when he was only 16 years old in 1897, came to a thriving Liverpool and decided not to go to New York just to, to stay put. Um, and they were, they were pious, they were good people, they were part of the Orthodox Jewish community, the Ashkenazi community. And we were brought up with a collection of cultural things that I think I've taken with me to a substantial extent. So um, culturally, you did certain things, you ate certain things, you avoided certain things, you did certain things on a Saturday and so on. Uh, Friday night was always very special. Uh, Pesach was always a nightmare for my mother and a headache and doing all the cleaning and so on. Um, but um, uh, Seder night was when we got the history and I remember when I had to do the four questions, Manish Tanar and so on, um, and my grandfather explaining in English first, uh, well, you see, Edwina, we were slaves in Egypt and we were brought out by Hashem and we crossed the Red Sea on dry land. And, and he I maintained thought, that strong accent despite having... Oh, well, it was, yeah, but it, it was real. And it probably happened when my grandfather was just a little child. You know, it was absolutely um, part of the way that we grew up. Um, it, it slid off into slightly more difficult things like uh, you don't fraternise with non-Jewish kids, really. Um, but it also carried forward with very strong uh, social and moral codes, which I hope I uh, still um, live by. So you have a duty to yourself to look after yourself, your health, your body, mental and physical. You have a duty to your family. You are obliged to look after them. It's an important thing to do. That means your, your spouse, your children, your parents, your siblings. Uh, and you have a duty to your community, which is very often translated as uh, the shul, but also the street, the neighborhood that you live in. And you have a duty to God, which is if you like is your conscience okay. so 
you know, whenever you move, you, you pack stuff, you take baggage with you in your little suitcase. A lot of that I've taken with me. I too have Polish roots on my maternal side. I've always sort of harboured this immense fascination with Eastern European heritage, which um, I think I neglected for some time in order to feel that I fully sort of fit into British culture. And it was only when I visited Lodge um, in central Poland when I finally allowed myself to sort of sentimentally attach to the past trauma of losing an entire generation of extended family. So when was that realisation and to Poland back in 2004? How was that trip and how did it affect you? Um, yeah, yes, I mean, there are different aspects of Jewish culture. Um, yeah, I turned some of it to good effect by getting O-level in classical Hebrew. To answer your question about, uh, about Poland, um, my family didn't talk about the old country. Uh, my grandparents, uh, my crystal grandparents, had decided that they, they were settled in Britain and all the family were going to speak English. So my mother never learned uh, Yiddish at all. And in fact, if you think about it, Yiddish culture has completely vanished or virtually uh, vanished, certainly from Europe. And um, so uh, my mother used to say that, uh, yes, all the family could speak English. When my grandparents wanted to have a row with each other, they'd do it in Yiddish so the kids <laughs> couldn't understand. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I knew nothing about where he came from until my, um, actually my, my, my thought processes were piqued. My curiosity was, was uh, aroused. When I did go into Poland several times, one of my books became a, a big bestseller and it was translated in several languages. And I went to Warsaw in 1995 uh, and to Krakow. Um, and that was the first visit to Krakow. It took me three different visits to Krakow before I could visit Auschwitz. No birds sing at, at Auschwitz. But I wanted to find out more about him. And um, not least because one of the cycle rides that we did, uh, as you know, we've done some long distance cycle rides over the years. And one that we did uh, was from Vilnius to Warsaw. These were for Marie Curie Cancer Care. And so we were going to... Um, end up in Warsaw at her birthplace, which is a museum. Uh, and in fact, I, I got to sit in her chair and, and oh, all sorts of wonderful stuff. But I realized when I looked at the map that we were coming through northeastern Poland. We started at, um, at Vilnius, as it is now, Vilna, as it used to be. And we crossed over uh, Augustov at the border. And then we were coming through a most beautiful kind of lake district. Uh, area with uh, very kind of Scandinavian looking countryside, lovely to cycle through, brilliant, with little, little towns perched on hillsides. And um, I decided to see if I could find out more. And what I did was I looked up National Archives, I went into the naturalization bit, I put in my grandfather's name, and bingo, it came up, he was naturalized in 1919. <laughs> and it said, Do you want to download that? Yes. Um, £8.50, yes, <laughs> and these papers arrived, and there was a whole history, and we had been within 20 kilometres of where he grew up, wow. which was then quite a sad history, because it was a town called Yedvabne, which is in the, uh, we would say Lomza, Womza region, northeastern Poland, and Yedvabne was the scene of a, a massacre by Poles of their own classmates, in uh, 1942. It wasn't the Nazis that did it, it was the locals. It was turned into the play Our Class by our National Theatre. 
and it looked at the way that people can turn on each other on the spin of a coin. A great, great tragedy. It helped to explain why the family never talked about right. home other than here. Of course. Well, I mean, in a past interview, you stated that um, you can't be Jewish growing up immediately after the war and think politics has nothing to do with you. And I think that, you know, as Jews with a vast number of, of us having Eastern European descent, we inherently grew up with the understanding that politics, you know, matters. And you and Jeremy Corbyn, both entered the Houses of Common um, after the 1983 election uh, on the same day. Um, so, you know, firstly, I wanted to ask you if you recall um, any of your first encounters with, with Mr. Corbyn, but secondly, I think when politics does turn viciously anti-Semitic, how do we stand up for ourselves? How, what can we do sort of as students, citizens and Jews to feel safe in a political climate, which quite recently has turned rather frighteningly hostile? Uh, yes, in, in 1983, that was Margaret Thatcher's second election. She got a majority of 144. Um, but others who came in on that day included Tony Blair and uh, Gordon Brown, a whole host of people who, shall we say, made a greater impact, at least uh, for a number of years. Um, Corbyn was one of those socialists who never made friends with anybody. A nasty piece of work. Uh, very narrow-minded, not very bright, I think. And um, one of those people for whom debate is a waste of time, discussion is a waste of time. I, made, I, I was a conservative MP, but I made friends with people on the other side, and um, often they were quite protective because they recognised a, a, a North Country lass in a house full of blokes <laughs> might have a bit of looking after, uh, and they were very nice and very helpful. But Corbyn was... Um, small-minded little weasel of a man very pleasant bad manners um wouldn't give you the time of day uh, even even dennis skinner behaved better than he did um i used to tease dennis and i used to see him kind of looking at me but there was a little twinkle in his eye as well so Den dennis is a, another story entirely however um, what can we do about anti-semitism um, I've given quite a lot of thought to your question because you were kind enough to give me a little bit of notice of this. Um, I mean, the obvious thing to say is call it out. Call it out. We are not victims. And um, we should, uh, I, I say to my grandchildren, look, there are several things we need to absorb in life. One is we are not bullies and we're quite strong people. It's very easy to be a bully when you're a strong person. Number two, we are not victims which means that if somebody's having a go at us, we should feel our hackles rise and all our, our um, dominant characteristics <laughs> taking over. And that includes, um, you know, the brains and the wits and the intelligence that we have at our disposal, thank God. But also if we see bullying of any kind, we should not stand idly by. Now, in school, for a school child, that means sometimes going and finding somebody in authority. It doesn't necessarily mean getting stuck in and having a fight with a bully, but it does mean doing something about it. Sure. Now, I, I would add a couple of things to that. I used to argue with my mother. Her favourite uh, little ornament, which I've still got, is a piece of ivory of the three wise monkeys. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. And I used to argue with her and say, <laughs> that's why it's evil right if good people will not call it out if you won't do something about it then it will continue 
I'd add one more thing. I think it's enormously helpful to have allies. And that means Jewish people should make friends with other people who aren't Jewish. Real friends, good friends for life. And that means if you have problems, if you are struggling a bit with something like this, you've got someone else outside the community that you can talk to and who may be able to come to your aid. And that's also why, Rebecca, I was so involved in all the campaigning on things like gay rights. I hate discrimination in any form. I hate discrimination against women. I hate discrimination against blacks. I hated the fact that gays could be sacked from the military just because they happened to be gay or lesbian. And I was a willing recruit to try and do something to make the law more equal. If we help create a world which is more equal, more tolerant, more robust, then we create a better world for everybody, including ourselves. Talking against feminism, you objected to the statement that we are all feminists and you discussed um, having to pay, what was it, extra money for sheets when a male acquaintance stayed over? <laughs> well, um, yes, that was when I was at, um, when I was a student and there were still all sorts of weird rules. The, the background, of course, was that of the, um, the 30 odd colleges, about 30 colleges in Oxford at the time, only five were for women. Uh, and St. Anne's had only recently been incorporated, the one that I went to, which happened to have uh, the, the largest number. And the rules were still quite bizarre that um, you had to be in by 10.30 at night. Yeah, I'd had, I'd had kids at the front new, door. Yeah, there's a new curfew. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I grew up in Liverpool. I had to be in by 10.30, are you kidding? And um, you could only have two men in your room. Uh, uh, that was, so that meant if my dad was there and my brother was there, my boyfriend had to leave or wonder. It's absolutely ridiculous. And eventually I, I was on the JCR committee, the Junior Common Room Committee, and I complained about a lot of this and said I thought it was nonsense. And at that time in the 1960s, you treat young women as adults and all that kind of thing. So they changed the rules and said, and this is after I had finished, that you could have a man in your room. You could have your boyfriend in the room. You could have him all night. Wow but you had to pay for clean sheets in the morning. <laughs> but that was just their final way of sort of spiting at the end. But yeah. <laughs> you, you touched on sort of um, your LGBTQ plus allyship and you've, you've always been a vocal ally of the LGBT community, you know, supporting both Stonewall and then you supported the Tory campaign for homosexual equality, which for our listeners previously campaigned for legislation, which gave equal rights to consent to gay men, um, just as heterosexual men. Do you feel in any way that orthodoxy, you know, whatever the religion, inhibits our ability to fully embrace the inclusion of the LGBT community wholly? It's a little hard to answer that because I don't know how um, a, a really good orthodox scholar would respond to that. Um, the world I grew up in over 50 years ago is very different. Uh, you know, I was born before Israel existed and uh, that has changed profoundly the way that uh, people, many Jewish people think about themselves uh, and uh, culture, their history and their future. And it, it, it's a different world. But uh, religions have conflicting obligations. One is to preserve the moral code that they feel is at the heart of what they do, or the heart of the law, or the books, or the teaching uh, that they have been given. And in fact, an awful lot of that is cultural. 
it's it's just an accretion of the ages it's not uh, it's not fundamental uh, but the other half really is to adapt to the modern world because if they don't they'll die it's just it really is as simple as that uh, and i would hope that modern orthodoxy has got its head around the idea that actually women are equal yes we are and that um, gays are also created by hashem and have a right to exist and do you know what um, actually as i said before the more tolerant a world that we can help create the easier it is to be jewish and to be whatever you want to be so i mean along a similar line you know i think um from a personal perspective i i often find myself sort of struggling with certain aspects of orthodoxy which i find limit women in various ways and in your various publications you've referred to sexism in orthodoxy on several occasions do you feel in any way that sort of the narrative of female repression within orthodoxy has changed at all in recent years or, or is it something you feel is quite um is sort of alive and kicking well it must have changed in many ways uh, as, as part of looking back at family history uh, i got various marriage certificates of members of the family who were married around the year 1890, 1900, 1910. And over and over again, um, not in my immediate family, but cousins, you find that the woman, the, the bride, can't sign her name. She leaves her mark. She's illiterate. Now, uh, all Jewish men are literate. Why? Because they have to be able to read Torah at their bar mitzvah. Uh, the girls, not necessarily, it would very much depend on the attitude of the parents and certainly of the father. So in my crystal family, eight children brought up to adulthood, a tremendous uh, achievement in itself. Um, and their, their education varied. Uh, the, the girls that caught up did so under their own steam. My, uh, my auntie Zena in Bournemouth ended up being uh, quite a local guru, I gather, and was very proud of all the certificates she got about Bibles and Bible studies and Jewish history and so on. Uh, but she had to do it herself, whereas the boys had it by the time they were 13. The boys didn't always value it. I think the girls always resented that they were slightly left out. And that comes to a head. For, for any young women who are worried like that, I would say just become a scholar. Just become as knowledgeable as possible. If you can quote the scripture that gives you the equality that you seek, or that gives you the respect that you deserve, then you're in a much better position to have a really good, good-humoured and well-informed uh, discussion, uh, debate, and you might just win the debate. Did you by any chance um, watch the recent Netflix show on Orthodox um, with yes. Jira Hass Hass, which was brilliant, based on Deborah Falvin's story? Yes. What, were your, what were your thoughts on that? I thought she was a bit thin. <laughs> but she had a great screen presence, didn't she, despite, despite her stature? Yes, I mean, there, there are, you know, tall and chubby Jewish girls. I mean, you know, I'm certainly <laughs> one of the last. Um, what I thought was really rather nice about it was that the husband was portrayed really sympathetically. He was really trying to do the right thing. He wasn't a bad man. He wasn't cruel. He wasn't wicked in any way. Um, he was trying to be very kind. And she was choosing a route that most religions would find extremely difficult to cope with, which was that she didn't actually want to be married and rearing children. She wanted to do almost anything else.
uh, and you can only wish her well in the world that she's going into. Where, where I am unhappy is if any branch of, of any religion, but particularly of ours, uh, intimidates and scares its, um, its members so much that they are too terrified to raise their heads and look at the outside world. The outside world is a much kinder place than I was ever told it was when I was a kid. You know, the, the country we live in is amazing. You know, Britain withstood Nazism and fascism to the point where thousands, 60,000 people died in the Blitz, hundreds of thousands if you count our, our soldiers. Uh, in that Crystal family, we had my Uncle Abe, who was there from D-Day right through to Berlin, driving an ammunition truck. You said he used to hide underneath it whenever there were raids. I mean, oh my God. Uh, my, his brother, my Uncle Jack, uh, was a translator. He'd, read, uh, he'd managed to get to Cambridge and he read languages. And he stayed in Germany and wasn't uh, discharged until 1947. We think he was at the Nuremberg Trials. Uh, another cousin, Aubrey, was a pilot and was uh, killed uh, in Malta. You know, the, the, this, this, this is what this country did with Jewish people joining in very, very willingly. And it wasn't, these were to, to defend some important universal objectives. And because in 1944, the United Kingdom could have made peace with Germany. United Kingdom could have said, we're sick and tired of this. Four years of war is enough. That's it. We'll make peace. Right? And Germany would probably still be fascist. I mean, not but obviously they didn't. Part of achievement, but yeah. They, no. went, back, they went back into, into Europe and they, they trudged across Europe, um, liberating nation after nation, France and Belgium and, uh, and Italy, and eventually liberating at least half of Germany and bringing uh, a peace to Europe, which we've had ever since, and a, a, a dignity and a respect for human rights uh, that pervades, I think, most of you. I think it's an amazing country to live in. We should be really proud to be in it, and we should do our best to keep it like that as far as we can. I mean, I agree to it to a huge extent. Where, where I would sort of challenge your perspective, I think, is I think there is this unavoidable discomfort with the way that, that Jews were rejected from the country, you know, back when they were seeking refuge coming out of Poland, Germany. I do think that there was, you know, possibly some more that Britain could have done as, as a country, but I don't know how you feel about that. Well, you know, nowhere is perfect. Nowhere is perfect. Uh, the Foreign Office of that time under Ernest Bevin, I think was uh, pro-Arab and anti-Semitic. Right. Uh, certainly very much against the idea of a Jewish homeland. Whereas actually Britain was one of the first countries to recognize the new state of Israel. And that was the same government. So you're not going to get perfect. You want consistency. It's a quality you require of butter. You're not going to get it of politicians. <laughs> you touched previously on, your, on the Marie Curie Cancer Foundation. You contend that Marie Curie is a heroine and the person who you'd host at a dream dinner party, which is quite a statement. So where does this um, admiration for Marie Curie come from and what, what sort of draws you to her? Uh, she was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize. She was the first woman to win two Nobel Prizes. And then her daughter was the next woman uh, to win a Nobel Prize. Uh, they were a remarkable bunch of people. If you read her her life story, I mean, the reason that she was 
studying in Paris was that women could not study at the University of Warsaw at that time. Um, and so she did deal with her older sister, Bronwyn. Bronwyn went to Paris, qualified as a doctor, started working, and then sent for Marie, um, Maria as she was, to come to Paris and supported her then when, when she was a student. And she was top student. I mean, she was, you know, outscoring everybody in maths and science and so on. When the first Nobel Prize was awarded for the discovery of radioactivity. Which she drew um, her husband, Pierre, at the time, didn't you? Well, let me tell you the story. I did a full celebrity <laughs> masterclass. <Go> <laughs> So um, she, coined the, she coined the phrase radioactivity and she knew right away that it was going to be useful in all sorts of ways and particularly for uh, uh, curing cancer. And in fact, I have reason to be grateful because my husband's been treated with, with exactly that radiotherapy. The Marie Curie's ghost was there in the room as they were doing it, you know. Uh, when the Nobel Prize was first awarded, it was going to go to Henri Becquerel and to Pierre Curie. And it was Pierre who said, hang on a minute, the one who did all the hard work yeah. is my wife, right? So instead of awarding it to Becquerel, Curie, and Curie, so they got a third each, the Curies only got half, and she only got a quarter, which she probably spent on putting in a new kitchen into their home. <laughs> Funny, I actually, yeah. I, I did a, um, a project on her as, a, as, I mean, I must have been in you know, year six or, year five or six and something that stood out to me about her is obviously you know her ambition and her intelligence was just outstanding but also her the love story between her and Pierre. Uh, I mean if you if you want to know about uh, prejudice of any kind her, her life story is quite something um, and in, in so many ways and what was lovely about her was that she she withstood all that pressure and she came through and you need uh, grace, you need perseverance, you need talent, real talent. You need to be able to focus on what really matters. Uh, later on, when she came up for the second Nobel Prize, she was accused, remember this is the world of Dreyfus, she was accused of being Jewish. And uh, she wasn't, she was Polish. Uh, but, you know, the whole atmosphere was really very, very nasty. She also, she... <laughs> I suppose one of the things that appealed to me about it was she had an affair with a married colleague and uh, it, didn't, uh, it didn't end well, let's put it like that, except that her granddaughter married the son of the colleague. So you mentioned um, entering the Houses of Parliament, so that was in 83 when you became MP of South Derbyshire and you were one of 23 women among 633 male counterparts. So I just want to ask sort of what sort of instances of any um, of sexism do you, do you recollect? Well, bear, bear in mind that I was accustomed to being one of a handful of women in uh, a world uh, dominated by men. Uh, yeah. That had been true from university days onwards. It was true when I went to join Arthur Anderson. Uh, they were very keen to recruit young women, very forward looking. They took on 55 university graduates that year, 1969, of whom two were women, which was two more than most of the city firms did at the time. Um, it, you know, I, I was accustomed to doing that. And there's an element of, well, weren't you the token women? Uh, yeah, probably, fine, bring it on. 
yeah. if that means that you've got the job that you want who worries you know I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to be the uh, yeah. the symbol and the one of the reasons why I wasn't a feminist I didn't answer your question earlier was that it seemed to, at that time they were a fringe movement and they were more interested in burning the bra than actually promoting um, the uh, progress of women and they certainly weren't interested in the kind of woman that I wanted to be uh, and it struck me as a choice I could either spend my time being a campaigning woman for women's equality and all the rest of it or I could get on and do it and Marie Curie got on and did it she didn't make lots of speeches about equality she simply pushed ahead and showed other people the way forward and that seems to me is a, a much better approach for all the young women listening today i want to ask you what advice you have for us women pursuing careers in politics journalism corporate companies or otherwise i would say work out what you think is really important and concentrate on that and reduce the importance of everything else i mean if you don't want your parents commented on then uh, you know don't make it a highlight of your day if you don't want your shoes commented on, then just wear plain black ones, for heaven's sake. <laughs> you know? um, the, the way I used to do it was I would wear um, a, a dark skirt, usually black or navy blue, um, dark stockings or tights and shoes. I have very awkward feet, so if I find a pair of shoes that fits me, I buy three pairs. So <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't matter if I can't find the, Yeah, It also means that it doesn't matter if you can't find the other one. There's always an a right foot in the box still you know um, and then I would have kind of flashy jackets so I'd spend the money on a jacket and that meant that I was always telly ready uh, I looked smart I looked like I was on top of the job if you if you are going to be a successful member of parliament especially bear in mind you're dealing with 80,000 constituents they're coming to you for help they often have tragic stories they want you to look as if you are on top of things but not as if you are so successful you couldn't care less about them so they would come to my advice bureau in a, a suit shirt and tie and they would have you know made the effort to look as smart as possible and then tell me very very sad tales um, and th there's an element of trust that then that, that if you if you work hard you can you can build up if you are endlessly worried about your appearance then you shouldn't be in anything where you're visible am i making sense the jewish <laughs> people were multi-talented people we can do all sorts of things you can be a, a karl marx you can be an einstein uh, you can be a mendelssohn you can be a, a, a fine painter there are all sorts of things you and you could be a prime minister you could be a disraeli if you want but you do it by focusing on what really matters, becoming extremely knowledgeable about that, working hard at it, always giving value for money and always giving, adding value. So if you're asked to be there at nine o'clock, be there at five to nine. Uh, if you are asked to stay late, do it. Uh, if you need to make sure that your support mechanisms, if you have childcare issues, make sure that they're working. Make sure that they're working. Do not flap. Do not be a feeble little woman. Do not be a victim. Oh, for God's sake, get up and do something and do it well. I mean, that doesn't excuse uh, the criminal behavior 
of uh, some people, some men in particular, who have used positions of power in order to force themselves. And uh, they are criminals and some of them are rightly behind bars. Uh, and I'm, I'm very glad to see that. And that's what I mean, you know, if you, if you observe examples of bullying, whatever form it takes, whether it's uh, racial bullying or sexual harassment, whatever, don't just stand idly by. Make sure you call that person out. And it can involve actually being incredibly brave to do that. It can involve being a witness in a court case. It can involve actually standing up and saying exactly what happened and why it was a bad thing to happen. And then you need to protect yourself mentally and move on. As a woman who's you know, widely considered an equalist icon, which, which people influence you as role models when you were growing up and you know, in a later stage in life? Who was most significant to you in your growth? I think my, my, my grandfather, Joe Crystal, was important. I felt that he had made his life really a, a great success. He was never a wealthy man. He never owned a house. But he had had the courage to leave uh, Yedwabne in Poland at the age of 16. Uh, I gathered that there was going to be a census in that region and anybody, uh, males over 16, were going to be drafted into the Russian army. Uh, somehow the family had managed to avoid that for his older brother, uh, who was, uh, had a certificate to say he was unfit. Had it. it must have cost them a lot of money to do that. He lived to be a grand old age, uh, my uh, great uncle. Uh, but he came to Liverpool. He learned how to be a cabinet maker. He worked all his life. I've got his notebook when he was in his 80s and he's still doing household accounts and, and adding things up. And there's even sixpence in there for my brother. He was amazing, I think. So he's a great hero. Um, the people who helped me included the head teacher at school who uh, I, I went to talk to. I said, uh, you know, I would very much like to go to university, but I don't want to go to Liverpool. I want to move away from home and she said how about Manchester and I said I have to stay at my auntie's it'd be exactly the same well how about London oh, we couldn't afford London so how about Oxford and Cambridge now how would someone like me get into Oxford and Cambridge and she said well there's three or four of you I'm quite like to put together as a tutorial group uh, she was a Cambridge graduate um, I will tutor you I will give you a reading list and uh, let's see how we get on what are you interested in? Politics, all right. So she gave me a reading list, which included, let me see if I can remember it all, Plato's Republic, Sir Thomas More Utopia, uh, Samuel Butler Erewhon. We know the heavy reads. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just about to turn 16. Um, uh, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley and 1984 by... Um, uh, by George Orwell. She said, if you haven't got time to read the whole of 1984, try Animal Farm. But 1984 is what it's really about. Uh, and I came back to, after the summer holidays, Miss Hiscock said to me, um, and how did you get on with the books? And I said, oh, they were great. And I went to the library and I got all the rest of Plato out. So I read The Last Days of the Republic and, and uh, uh, Life of Socrates and all that stuff. And she went, really? <laughs> she said, well, that'll give you something to talk about when you go for the interview. And she was absolutely right. Absolutely right. She widened my mind and made me hungry for more. Um, and she was reincarnated in the uh, principal of St. Anne's, of St. Anne's College, when I got to university. Because I went up to read chemistry. 
Did you? And I knew, yeah, um, well, Marie Curie, of course I went up to read chemistry. It was much easier for a woman to get in to read sciences than for English. And it was hefty discrimination against women for the art subjects. Um, but for the sciences and maths, um, we had the white heat of the technological revolution. Uh, and so there were more places than there were applicants and it was much easier to get in. Uh, so I got into chemistry. I did it for about a term. I kept breaking things in the lab. I am physically not very capable. Hey, and uh, <laughs> I, went, <laughs> I went to see her and, oh, and it did not help that the uh, previous year, the Nobel Prize for Chemistry had gone to another woman, Professor Dorothy Hodgkin, who was actually Margaret Thatcher's tutor uh, at Somerville. And the bar for women chemists had gone, woof, yeah. You, you couldn't muddle through anymore. They were expected to be an absolute genius. And I said to um, the, the, the principal, Lady Ogilvie, uh, I don't think I'm up to this standard. And she said, well, what do you do in your spare time? And I said, oh, I go to the politics lectures at Nuthill College. I'm fascinated by... Uh, for example, how opinion polls are created. Dr. David Butler gives a course of lectures there. And she looked and said, that's postgraduate college. You've only been here a term. I said, yes, but I've got maths, you see. I've got maths and science and so on, so I can understand it. Well, she said, you, you could read PPE if you want. Philosophy, politics and economics. I would never in a million years have got in to do PPE. So I was going to say PPE but, is the most, and I, I'm sure it was, but today it's you know, mm -hmm. one of the most competitive degrees to get into. Um, oh yeah. Board the yeah, absolutely. But not only did I just sort of walk into it through the back door, um, <laughs> but I said, can I keep my scholarship? And she said, oh, I'm sure we could arrange that. Now, people like that are worth their weight in gold. Two of those were teachers. And I would always say, I often say to students, if you get a bit stuck, think about who might have the answer to the query in your head. Examine why you're being stuck. Think about it. What are you good at? What are you bad at? What is a matter of knowledge? What's a matter of skill? What's a matter of aptitude? And go and talk to somebody. There's always somebody around, and it's usually a member of staff, who can guide you through this and who may say, oh yes, there's another door. Here's the key. Click, and through you go. I've always found it fascinating how you know teachers from such an early stage, mould your entire life trajectory in terms of just their encouragement in a certain subject that you recall from, you know, a class you took in your, in your you know, adolescence or, or even before that. Teaching is, uh, I think, an undervalued profession. Uh, it, it is so significant for children, certainly up to the age of about 17 or 18, you have three influences on you. One is your parents, your family, the people that you that bring you up and their ideas and attitudes and the way they behave and the example that they set. The second is uh, teachers and the way they uh, react with you and with others in a classroom. Are they encouraging? Do they expect more of you? Do they say to you, this is okay, but actually you could do a lot better. Um, I, you know, I, I, used to, I used to teach uh, sick form and A-levels in an um, a college and also in a public school and I used to show the kids I'd say well in your essay I've given a, a tick to a good paragraph and a double tick to a really good paragraph 
and a little X next to ones that probably are not very good. Now you need to work out for yourself what I'm getting at. Come back and ask me if you want to. Um, and a, a teacher shows you the world and can give you skills to navigate it. Uh, the, the third bit, of course, is the internet, uh, the world outside, and that's terribly filtered because we filter that through what we tap into Google in the first place. I do wish you know, more, more women did actually pursue STEM, which I think has, it's funny that you said that, it's funny that you said women used to sort of, um, more women used to be attracted to sciences, because I think that actually that's changed now. I think um, yeah. we're vastly encouraged to sort of move towards humanity subjects. Um, yes, I, I, I think there's, an aware, there's been a, a real awareness that actually, um, I mean, these days most schools are co-ed which wasn't the case, not, not the private schools, but certainly state schools are nearly all co-ed. And that means that you tend to get a natural differentiation within the school, that the boys tend to go in one direction, the girls tend to go in another. Um, and a real effort has to be made to correct that. And the other group of uh, young people, of course, who get badly neglected are um, young white boys, young white males, particularly in poor neighborhoods, uh, their educational achievement is dreadful. I mean, I used to say in a slightly sarcastic way that nobody was bothered when young white girls' educational achievement was poor, uh, but they were bothered, they were bothered. And we need now to pay more attention uh, to young men. It's, it's tragic to see, uh, you know, I, I live in the Peak District, I live in Derbyshire, and the education standards here are much lower than they should be, partly because there isn't really a university here. The nearest university is uh, Manchester or Liverpool or Sheffield. And there's an element of assuming that the local kids are not very bright. But they are. They are very bright. They're phoning me now and they're telling me they're very bright. <laughs> they, they, if you can raise expectations and if you can encourage the people that you are... Um, teaching then you can and if you've given them the idea that actually they not that they can do anything uh, we can't do anything that's not right that's not true but that you can do a lot and that the way to do a lot is find out what's needed learn it and be ambitious and that way you'd be surprised how much you can achieve a, a lot a lot of thought is being given uh, as to how to even up um, our various systems and this year actually is going to be very interesting because we have a record number of uh, British students who are going to uni. Uh, certainly both Oxford and Cambridge have allowed in given places to all the ones that they made offers to and normally they offer 10% more than they're going to accept because the A-level results are not good enough and this year they've just abandoned that and said right you can all come um, and I gather that in at least one Cambridge college, they've turfed the dons out of the beautiful old rooms and said, no, we need those for students. Yes, that's getting your priorities right, you know. Uh, and that's going to mean that we have a very large cohort of people coming through whom, who are finding life tough right now. But by golly, in years to come, they're going to be amongst the most resilient of our citizens because they're going to say, you know, what's happening now in a session? Oh, we lived through COVID. We managed through COVID. We managed through all the kerfuffle about A-level results. We got into uni. We uh, had to isolate. My goodness, you know, for three weeks, I had nobody to talk to but my eight people I was in a bubble with. God help me. I had to do all my own laundry. Um, yeah. We managed. <laughs> They're going to be 
tremendous. They're, they're learning resilience right now, and they're going to be a, a wonderful. You are going to be a wonderful generation. You're going to have to be because you're going to have to pay my pension in future anyway. Something that stood out to me was when you said you decided to switch from chemistry and then you pursued PPE, which obviously two vastly different you know subjects. But um, do you think that was you know obviously that worked out for you, and obviously you know that set you up on on a life tangent which you know was suited to you. But do you think that that was a form of imposter syndrome, which you know is is you know, hugely familiar to quite a few of us. But do you think it's, do you think it was an imposter syndrome saying you weren't, you know, you weren't good enough to be studying that? Or do you think that that was a reality? Um, I don't think it was imposter syndrome. I think what happened was that the A-level syllabuses for uh, chemistry were a little bit old fashioned. And uh, they did no, uh, no atomic chemistry whatsoever. Uh, so all you had to do was learn it. And it, Michael Faraday would have reckon, recognized an awful lot of it. There was very little modern chemistry. There was nothing about radioactivity in it or anything like that. And um, I found it easy. I, I got A's and I got uh, scholarship level and so on. When I got to uni, which was 18 months later, effectively, we were bang up to date. We were into the most modern stuff. And it was bewildering. But also it wasn't terribly interesting. I couldn't see what kind of work I might do. Well, I could actually. Uh, I remember thinking it through and thinking, all right, well, I could go back and work in um, a factory and speak making biochemicals. Um, I could be an industrial chemist of some kind. That's exactly what Margaret Thatcher did. She went to work for uh, Jay Lyons and she worked on artificial cream. I mean, oh, you know. When you could do politics, my goodness me, no. <laughs> so one of the many reasons that you know you're so you know you're such a national treasure is just just because of your you know this refreshing honesty that you have, and it's you know an absolute highlight was um, I was watching well, Good Morning, what was it, Good Morning Britain, and your husband comes down and says, literally the staircase behind you, Shay, yeah, <laughs> and the poor man sort of didn't even know he's on like national television and your reaction was absolutely hilarious but um you know one of the quotes that said over, over in the past was um i'd look like Alan first and if i could but on the whole i'd rather keep my brains <laughs> which was yeah. said back in an evening standard interview you know there's this sense of you simply owning private details made public or rightly standing up for yourself in the face of public opinion and yeah but the, sure but there's an extra element there yeah. Um, bear in mind that uh, I, I grew up in a world in which uh, women were judged on their looks over and over and over again. Uh, and that's why school, college and so on were such a joy, because you were judged on where you came in the exam results. And I was always up there somewhere. Um, and I deplore the idea that we judge people on looks. Now, we're bound to do it. We instinctively do it. You, 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 you've read Blink um, and, and you, you know that actually we react very instinctively and very quickly to uh, the appearance that is presented to us. But we should do better than that. And we should be more thoughtful about how we uh, judge people. I, I think we should judge far more actually on results. And that's hard to do because you can't do that at the time. You, you don't get the results later. I mean, people are going on and on about uh, Boris Johnson and the government and all this uh, in the middle of the pandemic. 
we don't know how we're going to come out of this. We won't be able to make proper judgments for four or five years, I would think. A great deal of what the government has encouraged is going brilliantly. I think we'll have vaccines. I think we will have millions of people vaccinated in this country, perhaps well ahead of much of the rest of the world. We already have treatments that were developed and proven in this country, like dexamethasone, uh, which have been saving many thousands of lives. Um, the NHS did not collapse. Uh, an effort is being made now to catch up with the backlog, uh, not only in the NHS, but in the courts and the justice system and so on. Uh, you know, a lot of very, very good stuff is going on. Um, and I think Boris is doing his best. Judgments will be made when we add up all the bills and we see whether we've come out of this well or badly. Uh, and, and I obviously hope, I'm optimistic, that we will come out of this unscathed with all our values intact um, and with our university students, the most resilient in history. Occasionally you can see why something goes wrong um, and why somebody perhaps should have thought about it. Uh, so, you know, why did, why did we suddenly find ourselves with uh, inadequate capacity for testing a few weeks ago? And when you think about it, it's fairly obvious why. Because lots and lots of students who were uh, not able to be at school or college and their lecturers have been working in the labs uh, doing all this work and, and building up all the capacity for testing. And then uh, beginning of September comes and they all go back to uni and they need testing. So they switch very quickly from being on the supply side to the demand side. And if anybody in Whitehall had ever actually walked around a lab and said to people, you know, a bit like the Queen does, oh, what did you do before you came here? Then some alarm bells might have rung and some uh, effort made to make sure that that particular dip didn't happen. But we're on top of it now. Do you feel that today women lack the confidence that, that you've built with life experience? You know, whether it's because of social media, which you touched on briefly beforehand, or the advertisements that we're constantly bombarded with. Do you feel that women, you know, lack that self-confidence that's hugely important for us to assume our place within society? Well, there's, I, I think there's a, a, a very clear age gradation. So um, people in their 80s lived through the Second World War um, and they feel they can cope with anything. <laughs> Not always right, but that's how they feel. And they're quite contemptuous of uh, younger people. It's not just women, actually. I think young men feel exactly the same. Um, they're contemptuous of younger people who they regard as uh, snowflakes. Um, I think there's also a point where when you become a parent yourself and you take on the responsibility for somebody else's life and livelihood and well-being, uh, you do have to grow up very, very quickly. Um, I, I could only wish that actually that parenthood was regarded with more, uh, more pleasure, more joy. Um, it, it's seen as, too, as a trial and difficult, a tribulation, um, and to be avoided by an awful lot of people. And I think that's a real shame, a real shame. It's one of the reasons why we still have large numbers of people arriving in Britain, doing the jobs um, that people born here um, don't do because we haven't had enough born here, if that makes any sense. That's a problem that Japan is facing as well. Um, but I think the world in which, and I get very cross about this, the world in which, because you're a woman, you should be afraid, is awful. 
it's absolutely wrong. It gives people the wrong sort of ideas. It gives predators an opportunity to rub their hands with glee. Uh, and it gives, um, it, it, it's giving work to, oh, I don't know, lawyers and psychiatrists and all sorts of people. Whereas what we need to give people is strength and courage and forbearance and selflessness. Uh, every time someone is told to be self-aware, I'm thinking, well, maybe not. Um, if we think about what we can do for other people, sometimes we stop fretting about ourselves. And there are some very important lessons in Judaism there. Very important. And if you have it, put your faith in, in Hashem and um, you'll be a stronger person. Touching on the feminist point beforehand, I think another reason I, I still struggle to connect to the second wave feminism is because of that disdain, I think, for, for motherhood. I love that you value that part of your life hugely as well. You don't shy away from that. Uh, I, I said uh, something of that kind when I was uh, debating oh, about four or five years ago at Oxford in the feminist debate uh, that... Um, the, the, the feminist line, the, the British feminist line, uh, simply did not reflect the experience of millions of William, women around the world, billions of William, women around the world, uh, which did involve motherhood. And that the most precious moment in your life will be when your baby is laid in your arms. And then you know that you are committed for life to looking after and caring about and loving another human being and that this is an extraordinary um, moment. And um, uh, a woman called Penny, uh, who is known, I think, as Red Penny, uh, stood up and said, oh, you make me feel sick, and walked out. Did you go after her? Or did you just sort of leave it? No. <laughs> <laughs> See, I feel too bad. I often apologise my presence, and I sort of like go after people after I've you know, said something once. But I tell you what, Rebecca, the description that you've just given of um, what you did in lockdown and the uh, volunteering, there's a book in that. You're a writer. There's a book in that. The shared experiences and how, how people related to each other, older people and younger people. Uh, I volunteered for 15 years at Nightingale House in uh, South London. I used to have a, a, a flat on Nightingale Lane. And it, was, it wasn't me teaching them anything. I ran the book club for a very long time. I used to get authors to come and speak and have tea with us. Uh, those were the days when most of the people who were in uh, care homes, in a, a residential home, um, still blessed them, had all their marbles, but perhaps they were a bit frail. We had uh, people over 100. We had quite a lot of Holocaust uh, survivors. We had some absolutely splendid characters. We had one particular lady who at every significant point in Jewish history, such as the foundation of the State of Israel, uh, she was always there. She was always the secretary to right. somebody important, right? And she was always there, and then she would tell us. And I remember saying to one of the helpers, yeah, isn't Miriam wonderful, all the things that she's done? And the helper said, mm, she's just read it all up. It's all in her head, you know. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. I mean, that's a great, that's a great sort of, fictitious life to come up with. <laughs> a final question, because I don't want to keep you for too long and, and you've been hugely generous with your time, so thank you for that. 
after all the chaos of the last few months, is your secret crush still Boris Johnson? <laughs> oh my, um, I think I have transferred my affections to Rishi Sunak. <laughs> he's been named Dishy Rishi because he's a snack. Have you, are you familiar with that sort of terminology? When somebody's desirable, they're, they're a snack. And so he's been called Dishy Rishi, which I think is absolutely hilarious. Many, many years ago when I um, went to America for the first time, I was just 18. I went to stay with my auntie and uncle in Brooklyn, my dad's sister, and got myself a job in the J.C. Penney building right in the heart of Manhattan, working for the Royal uh, Dutch Shell Group. Uh, being a contometer operator, look it up. I couldn't type, I couldn't do anything, but what the hell. And I think I was employed for my, my British accent. And I remember seeing a guy go past and commenting to one of the girls, wow, he's quite a dish. And she said, what did he say? What did he say? I, I said, he's a dish. What do you mean he's a dish? I said, he's gorgeous. Oh, right. I did learn, um, yes, I did learn not to ask for um, a rubber. Language exchanges, you've got to be so careful with <laughs> it. Oh, there, there are always cultural differences, let's put it like that. Um, I think Boris is uh, doing reasonably well. He's not a man for detail. You know, when, when, when somebody goes to read classics, greats, as they were called, and fills his head with ancient Greek, um, there may not be much room in there to read tables of numbers and be a kind of Philip Hammond sort of figure. Um, but one of the things he does is connect really well with the people. And that's why when he gives his press conferences, they work. And most people accept right now that we have to be careful, we have to be responsible. They, uh, they see Parliament as being a drag on that, trying to stop sensible policies being put forward. They accept that we have not defeated the virus. They know people who've been seriously ill with it. They know people who've died. And they know that the virus is no respecter of politics or persons. Uh, they look at the doctors who are speaking on the um, national com press conferences and they see them as perhaps a bit doom and gloomish, but then that's jo doctor's job. And uh, somehow we have to live with this until it is beaten. And it will be beaten. It will be. This too will pass. My great-grandfather, the one who managed the mikvah, he died of Spanish flu in September 1918. I got his uh, death certificate and there it is. And the man who registered the death, his stepson, his son-in-law, died a few weeks later, also Spanish flu, a young man leaving a, a wife and a baby. Um, they lived through it and we will live through this and we will come through it fine. And I think by the time we get to the next election in 2024, I think Boris will be riding high again. Well, I hope so. Edwina, it's been an absolute pleasure meeting you. I want to thank you on behalf of the entire Jewish Society Committee for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule to dedicate to us. Very much my pleasure, Rebecca. I wish you, I wish you well and everyone that's uh, watching or listening, uh, work hard and be good to people. Make the most of who you are and let's make the world as good a place as we can. God bless.